I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the Mariner's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, a childhood dream leads Scott to the south of France and a little town called Antibes. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who's traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times. A published author has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Thank you, Todd. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, I hope you're doing well. Seems like our last episode did very well with Tim B. And what do we have set up for this week's episode? Well, this week, I'm um, doing a episode on place. And in this, this place will be uh, Antibes, France. Um, it's uh, titled The Whiff of Success. It's one of those places in the world that has not really suffered as much as one might be of some other places. Um, there's always been money, celebrity, um, just a lot of positive things all around this particular little town. And it is also the, the center of the yacht charter world in the Mediterranean. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about being a charter boat captain, a yacht captain on private yachts, um, experiences I've all had a little bit different experience than, um, talking with Tim, Captain Tim on Tim Batsey, um, who is a tugboat captain. Uh, charm is not required to be a tugboat captain, but, uh, another set of skills are to be a private yacht captain. Okay, great. Take it away, Scott. Antibes has been in my mind for as long as I can remember. And it's a very strange thing to actually be aware of. A very small town on the French Riviera and being American and in being brought up in a city and and you know everything american which is a very dominating um, brand so to speak and to even be aware of a little tiny town in france is um, kind of extraordinary in a way but it is a town that holds a special place in my heart it is of great interest in the yachting and sailing world and it's has a place in the minds of a lot of very talented, rich, powerful people. And it has the idea that it's kind of been like that for a very long time. And let me t- let me explain what I mean by all of that. When I was young i just i knew that the french riviera was about glamour and movie stars and mysterious dispatches from famous writers modern painters working and playing on the beach cycling and formula 1 race cars 
Before I had a full picture of this town, though, the awareness sort of happened through Italian cycling magazines. In the 50s and 60s, a steady flow of immigrants settled in Philly. I mean, we had everybody in our neighborhood in Northeast Philly from every country. was Almost every country was represented. And then most of the people came after being displaced um, because of World War II. And they came because there were no jobs in Europe at the time. Europe was rebuilding. Um, there wasn't a lot of opportunity, so they came to the States. And one of the people that came to the States was Lewis. And it turns out he was a passionate cyclist. Now, this is, I'm, I've got to frame this. This is me thinking back when I was 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. So Lewis was a passionate cyclist. And we we loved his his bicycle. He had a Bianchi, and it was handmade. It was considered like the Ferrari of bicycles, and it hung on the wall behind a row of chairs in his barber shop. Lewis was a barber. We looked at it as sort of being a work of art. And Bianchi's have been making bikes since 1855. And they're racing bikes today. You can see any number of them. They have their own racing teams. Amazing, amazing bikes. And I actually owned one for a short period of time. And they have that teal color which I always found sort of interesting so this work of art hung on the barbershop wall and we were as kids would come into the barbershop and just admire it I mean at the time we rode Schwinn's fat tires fenders baskets you know lights you know the whole shooting match and here was this piece of art that hung on the wall, very thin, leather, hard-looking saddle, and curved handlebars. Our handlebars were upright. Everything about the bike was unique and foreign to us. And Lewis was sort of the same way, but he was very nice, he was very jovial, and he, he, he would play this hand game with us where you know you knock knuckles and he had very quick hands and he would always destroy all of us and you know it was a lot of fun it was hanging out at, at the barbershop so a couple of times we saw him come out of the barbershop and get up on his bike and take off and we used to try to keep up with him going down the street actually to be honest if you're um, no philly going down Frankfurt Avenue, we would follow him and, and we would try to keep up with him. Um, but he would just, he would just disappear over the next rise and he'd be long gone and he'd leave us with a little, uh, little smirk and a, and a little Italian chow. And it would kind of float off into the air and that's, we would ride home going chow, chow, chow. Yeah, we were, you know, 12. So one of the things about Lewis's barbershop was he had a spread of cycling and movie magazines in Italian and French on the coffee table by the chairs. And on that 
covers, we'd see faces of, of, of famous cyclists, you know, grimacing as they climbed mountains and, and the Peloton and, and, you know, interviews and them holding up wreaths and, and, and trophies and team and all the rest of that stuff. And it was, it was very interesting, but it was extremely foreign to us because there was nothing like that in the States. The other magazines were movie magazines. And you had Sophia Loren and Bridget Bardot and all these references to the Cannes Film Festival. And then there was references to the Côte d'Azur and to the French Riviera and to Saint-Tropez and to Marseille and Nice and all these other places. But the thing that stuck in my mind is Lewis said one day, oh, Cannes is not where it's happening. Where it's happening is in Antibes. That's where the action is. So we constructed this whole scenario of who we thought Lewis was. We thought maybe he was a famous cyclist that had left Europe and come. We thought maybe he was in the movies somehow. We just didn't know, and he would never tell us. He would, he'd play with us. He'd intimate, but not tell us the truth. But the idea of this place, Antibes, where the action t- takes place, sort of stuck in my mind. The second time I heard of Antibes was, surprisingly, from my father. Uh, my father held nothing but American as being the most important and worthy of his admiration. He fought in the Korean War. He never ate a bite of Chinese food in his whole life. He wasn't particularly happy about Germans either. But one day, he came home screaming to my mother about Scuderia Ferrari. Mr. Enzio Ferrari had called him at the office. I don't believe I have ever seen my father as excited as he was that day when Mr. Ferrari called. He was so proud. And it's good for sons to see that in their father. So Mr. Ferrari had an idea and he wanted my father to to execute the idea. My father was a metallurgical engineer and professor. And he was working on this somewhat new and interesting uh, process of making parts, high-performance alloy parts, through a process called canning. Now, if there's anybody out there that's familiar with this, God bless you. Uh, canning is allows you to compress uh, the metal together with such force that it liquefies and it becomes into the, it melts and becomes into this part. So it's very good because there's no machining required on the part once the molds are made. And, and it, it, it's almost unbreakable because there's no flaws in any of the structure, the molecular structure of, of the canning. It's just real expensive to do, and it's not conducive to uh, assembly line frequency. It just takes time, and it's, it's hard to do. But for a crankshaft in a Ferrari, 
we could do that. So my dad was very, very happy. He came home to pick up some drawings that he had and to make estimates for the price of doing the crankshaft, the cylinders, and the pistons, and the um, piston rings, which is actually, they do make quite a bit of piston rings today. And these are all high performance, super expensive. It's the best stuff you could get. So he planned to call Mr. Ferrari at 11 o'clock our time. And my father was very bold and he, you know, he announced everything to my mom and my mom was just thrilled because she knew what this meant for the family finances. She knew what it meant for his career and she was extremely excited about the whole thing. My sisters who were too young just, you know, they kind of got into the whole thing and were jumping up and down and saying, wow, they didn't have a clue what was going on, but you know. It made my dad feel really good. And then he said that he was calling him because Mr. Ferrari was in Antibes, France, visiting friends, and it was at 11 o'clock that he had to make a call, and Mr. Ferrari was expecting his call. And I said, Oh, I know Antibes. That is where the action is, not can." And the bubble burst. I stunned my father. And he looked at me with a look of, of death. How do you know Antibes, boy? My mother immediately complained, it must be the magazines. And I can tell you, I don't remember the night ending very well. Still, the thought about Antibes being a secret coven of sexual promiscuity for the rich and famous stuck in my early teenage mind. The next time Antibes broached my consciousness was shortly after my 15th birthday. My aunt bought me a subscription to The New Yorker, and, and uh, God bless her, she's passed away, but I think that was the greatest gift I've ever gotten. I scoured those magazines from cover to cover every week to find out what was going on, and the French Riviera kept popping up in dispatches in a variety of different articles. Some fiction stories referred to Cap Antibes, I read about artists hanging around in Jean Le Pen and Antibes. I read about Picasso, Liger, Gris, and other modern painters that populated these pages. Then when May rolled around, the film news was about Cannes, filled with columns and columns and columns about new movies and directors and movie stars. And then a few weeks after that, it was Formula One in Monaco. Monaco. Formula One. There's nothing more romantic. And the exploits of, of car racing icons like Graham Hill, Mario Andretti, Jackie Stewart, just raised glamour, speed, and danger to spectacular levels. Many years later, Antibes became a destination for me. I had a romantic idea about the French Riviera, and this persisted as I sailed back and forth across the Atlantic. I sailed south of France. My, my course took me from, from Greece to Italy to Gibraltar and out into the Atlantic Ocean and back to the Caribbean. And this, I did 18 times, back and forth. 
and I never ventured north to France. But the south of France weighed on me because it was always a conversation with other skippers that were based in Antibes. Oh, yeah, Scott, you got to stop by. When you stop by, come into Antibes. I'll take care of you. I'll give you some references. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll do this. A lot of, you know, just networking that Antibes was the, the hub. It was the node, as they say today. It actually took me two, two years uh, more to find my way to Antibes. I had sold my sailboat up in Connecticut, and I was, at the time, strongly considering pursuing my film writing career. Now, at that point, I had written and had participated in writing several films. I'd had several plays in New York, and it's a difficult business, but I had given it up because of a lot of reasons, but uh, mostly uh, emotional reasons. Um, but I was really debating about getting back to that. The whole idea that I, I had just spent almost 20 years doing nothing but sailing and had risen sort of in the ranks of experience into somewhat of a competent, I, I hope somewhat of a competent captain. So after I sold my boat, I got a call from a friend of mine in Greece. And he said, hey, listen, come to Rhodes. Uh, we have this Benetti, which is an Italian powerboat. Come run that for us. So I said, you know what? It doesn't hurt. It won't hurt to be in Greece, in Rhodes, Greece, for a year running this boat or two years, whatever it's going to take. And I could write, I can, you know, I can think, I can do stuff. It'll be interesting. And anytime, you know, you get paid for living in a beautiful place, you take it up. I wasn't stupid. So I worked in Greece for a couple of years. I wrote some. I kept going. I flew to Greece. I began uh, basically what I consider my professional yachtsman career. The Benetti was over 100 feet, had a crew of five. And it was sort of like some kind of um, informal, formal Navy. And uh, it was both educational and frustrating. Where I could roam around the world in my sailboat, I could, you know, switch countries at a drop of a hat. I can say, hey, let's go down to the Grenadines. You know, I know this really great bay in there. We'd get some lobster. Okay, great. And just sail there. Or say, oh, no, let's go up to St. Martin. It's going to be really cool. They have a festival. Or Antigua, there's going to be, you know, a music thing there. Let's go over there. So any time you had free, you could just take the boat and go. I mean, it's my boat. I can do what I want. But when you're working for somebody, you can't just say, hey, I'm going to go over here for a while while I wait for the next charter. It sort of doesn't work that way. The schedules and the demands and the constrictions created by the owner had me chafing at the bit. I gave notice and I left the boat. My next stop was to go to Antibes and find another job. And Antibes is, after all, the yacht capital of the world, and if it isn't, I don't know what would be. So I caught a ride on a friend's boat, a Falcon 90, which is an Italian-made uh, powerboat, and it is, it's, it's a great little boat. And the reason I mentioned these two brands of boats 
is once you work on a particular yacht brand and gain experience with it, your job prospects are seemingly channeled in that direction. I had extensive sailing experience on CTs and my power yacht experience was Italian. And for the next five years, all I ran were Italian San Lorenzo and Ferretti yachts mixed up between two owners. All this experience culminated in me captaining a Perini Navi, which is a big sailboat, uh, 120 feet, and you've seen pictures of them, and it was a joy to drive that boat. And I probably would still be driving that boat if the owner hadn't passed away. I attributed my professional success to the town of Antibes. The charter season for these sort of yachts begins in late April and May. You start with the Cannes Film Festival in May. We used to sit on the dock and host parties. Next couple of weeks, we moved to Monaco for the Formula One race. We would entertain drivers and engineers. And it, this was the pinnacle of my professional yacht captain's career. It paid me well. I enjoyed the benefits like vacations in the Alps, free air travel, a car. I knew people. I knew important people. I reveled in the joy every time I sat down and ordered a coffee in an outdoor cafe. I loved the food. I learned the language enough to converse and understand basic conversations in French. I was happy until I wasn't. I thought I was enjoying success, but in reality, I was seeing a gaping disparity between the owner class and the support class. We've all been there. A constant feeling of being second fiddle. And in hindsight, I'm sure there were deckhands who were pissed about me uh, sitting in the office doing paperwork while they toiled outside in the August sun. I found that even in the owner class there were tears. Celebrities and artists were in a class all by themselves. Nationality, money, size of boat divided the rest. I remember in the 90s when the Russians could leave their country. Some Russian stood at the back of my boat the pass, at the passerelle asking to buy the boat. He said, I have cash, and he raised two briefcases in the air to show me that he was ready. Unfortunately, that's not how one buys a yacht. But eventually, that's kind of what they did. They just got the system down and bought a lot of yachts. But the rich Russian uh, was always met with uh, suspicion in the owner class. I really hate to say it, but not to, not to be outdone. Uh, American owner class were still being dismissed as having more money than class. I could go on about the differences, you know, the English and the French and the Germans and the Turks and all the rest of these countries that have 
rich people, disparity of income, and who buy yachts and come to Antibes to maybe not necessarily be seen, but that's their base. Then they can go off and be seen at the Portofinos, at the Central Pays. They they can go all over the place and 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 they can be seen like and the same with the Saudis. The Saudis do the same thing. They but just buy this whole thing. So there's all kinds of different levels within the owner class that they all sort of and I didn't know this until I was there that they struggle with the same thing as us support class people. So Antib itself, I should note has always had this atmosphere. The rich and the have-nots has existed since the Phoenicians settled Antibes. It continued when the Greeks and the Romans occupied the town. The town of Antibes has only known prosperity and safety. When the Germans occupied France during World War II, they treated Antibes as a vacation resort. When Monty and the Americans swept ashore in Operation Dragon, the Germans hastily retreated. As someone described to me in the town of Antibes, they were waiting. There was a group of German officers sitting in an outdoor cafe. A soldier ran up to them and said, the invasion is happening. And they put down their wine glasses and put their, folded their napkins very carefully on the table, stood up paid the bill, bowed to the owner, and walked off, and they were never seen again. And right after the war, Antibes was uh, settled kind of by the English again. A lot of -of out-of-work English soldiers uh, decided not to go back to England. And it's an interesting story in the sense that these guys didn't want to go back to the rain and cold. A lot of them were suffering from what we know today as PTSD. But they decided to stay in sunny Antibes. They started taking care of sailboats. They started taking people out on sailboats. They created systems, class systems, for bigger and bigger sailboats. And eventually they kind of created this whole charter business. This was sort of the beginning and the place where people with funds, not a lot of funds, but people with funds could come and rent a boat with a captain and a crew and be fed and sail around the Mediterranean. And this is what our, our billion, $4 billion uh, charter business is today. It's all because these guys didn't want to go home. So within 10 years after the war, Antibes' notoriety sort of rose when Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor used it as a hideaway for their honeymoon. Graham Greene wrote more novels, and Picasso took up residence in the Garibaldi Castle, where he created some of his most iconic work. But for me, it was a bit of an epiphany. After a while, I as I walked along the alleyways and you know there's beautiful bougainvillea flowers hanging out of baskets you know it's very colorful it's very beautiful i came to an understanding about myself the whole idea of antibes 
that had been floating around in my mind as a place where success could be found and enjoyed. In the yachting industry, this was the case for me. I found success. I was happy with that success until I wasn't. And it made me think about that success is not something whole or big. It is not something that has weight. Success is that zephyr of air that comes from a cloud of failures. So Antibes always existed as a place mentally, emotionally, romantically, ethereally, to give us the whiff of success. Scott, and you know, I've been to the south of France several times. I don't think I've ever made it out to Antibes. Uh, usually, I'm in Cannes for you know the festivals and markets out there. But it seems like the south of France is really the home for all those big yachts in the Mediterranean. Yeah, the Mediterranean, and especially in the south of France, it's a lot of people like to keep their yachts there. Um, the, it's been a tradition, as I explained in the story, how the business sort of developed. Also, the uh, airport in Nice is a very important uh, airport for people coming and going internationally, as a lot of very wealthy people do. And, and there's a lot of room for private aircraft. Uh, it's, it, that's an area that I didn't touch on, but um, a lot of people fly private. Uh, and it's a short hop from from Nice uh, to Antibes, and the town is just a quaint place. It's a it's a really beautiful. The old town is is really beautiful, and the suburbs are very nice. And um, yeah, it's it's just got charm all over the place, and and a ton of history. So uh, it it's become the place. You'll find a lot of boat brokers there. Uh, a lot of crew agencies, um, the infrastructure for operating uh, mega yachts uh, exists. So that's why you have a lot of uh, big yachts there. Yeah, and it seems like there's a lot of uh, famous people. I mean, you touched a bit in your story that have spent time there, right? Yeah, there's, you know, because uh, a lot of these big big yachts um, that are private uh, will charter uh, for some ridiculous prices that, you know, we're lucky if we make that much money in a year, you know, where it's like three, four hundred thousand dollars a week plus fuel, plus gratuity, plus crew salaries, etc. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of money, but you get people that do that. They rent the yacht for a week to 10 days and that's their big time vacation. Uh, it's, it's an expensive way to go. Um, but it's also kind of a special way to go. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a whole, that's a different, it's a different animal. Um, it takes a lot of different skills to pull that off. 
Yeah. And and of course, you know, you're right right next to Cannes, which is famous for the Cannes Film Festival. And so I'm sure there are a lot of celebrities that come in and out of that. And then, of course, you also have the uh, the Grand Prix of Monaco. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems like it, it's kind of the hub of the 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 area, the south of France. Yeah, that that. Yeah, it's the month of May, basically, that you have the Cannes Film Festival and the, the Grand Prix. So you have, you know, movie stars, etc. come uh, in May to Cannes Film Festival. They hang around a little bit. A lot of them stay out at the hotel in Cap Antibes. Uh, and then they stick around and they go to uh, Monaco for Formula One. And uh, I had a lot of experience putting boats on the quay right there where you see the, the cars and the pits. You see those big mega yachts there. I've put boats there. And that's, that's a task unto itself. I will, I will eventually do a uh, show on Monaco. Um, I have some ideas. I just would like to uh, be able to talk about the show while i'm there because there's some things that are that can only be shown and sounds that you can only listen to uh, that will make for a great broadcast but really when i talk about antibes and all the charter business and the the yachts it's actually not antibes the, the hub but there's a lot of other marinas that are much smaller that have big boats in them um, that go from go from marseille all the way to the Italian border. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you you call the story the whiff of success because, you know, I know in the south of France, I, I thought it was going to be a reference to all the perfumeries that are down there because there are a lot of perfumeries <laughs> in, grass, in the south yes. of France. Well, that's what gave me the idea to call it the whiff of success was because of, of, of grass and the perfumes uh, perfumeries that are there. Um, but I, I wanted to refocus on the idea that, um, the, I, you know, success is not something that just, uh, that you, that's big and bold and you revel in and it's all the rest. It's this very sort of fleeting thing. And we spend a lot of time grinding and, and, and from what I have learned from, uh, major celebrities, major businessmen, uh, all sorts of different kinds of uh, super successful people. It's not necessarily the success is not the uh, kumbaya moment that you might think. It's just the result of grinding away day after day after day and doing something that suddenly you turn around and you are a success. And that's sort of what I was trying to get at with the story. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't come all at once. It's, you know, you get a little bit here and there and then you keep toiling away and then one day you realize, "Oh, wow, look what we've done." Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um and lastly, I I I thought I caught a reference to I think we had mentioned it in way back in episode 3 on Love and Saffron Rice. Because it seems like it's kind of the same setting as uh, this story, right? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, love and saffron rice takes place in Antibes. It is. Uh, uh, you know, it, it talks about some of the elements of being. You know, in a situation of being a captain and and somebody who works on a boat, um, who is a varnisher, 
uh, extraordinaire, I might add, Kampur. Um, but yeah, it's it's the town is full of stories, and t- I I will be telling more stories about that because I I spent a number of years there, and there's a there's a lot to uh, to to say and to do. Yeah. So if you haven't heard that episode, I would recommend just go back and listen to episode three eleven saffron rice if you want to hear more about uh, Scott's experience in Antibes in the south of France. So. Wrapping up this episode, what do we have planned for next week? <laughs> uh, what do we have planned for next week? Next week, we're going to talk about the rudder. And the title of the episode is um, Going Where You Intend to Go. And I give a little bit of history about making the the point that the rudder is a very... Uh, influential technical part of the advancement of humankind and uh, I, I think I think it's a very illuminating a very illuminating subject if you like this episode be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts also be sure to rate and review you can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.zippocast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Ivisevich. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.